Hello and welcome once again to Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic, here to present to you again some of my favorite recordings. And on a day like today, which, while I am packaging this show, is extremely cold out there, I can't even warm up with my cup of tea. That's how I cold, how cold it feels and how cold I feel in here. I'm telling you, yeah, the office is decently warm, but when it gets this cold outside, I have problems warming up. Just a second, let me sip my tea. Mm -mm. It helps. But what's really going to help, I think, today is the music I have to present to you. I think this will warm more than a few hearts. And let's start with a great overture. Performed by an orchestra that is not often well known to those who don't collect recordings, even though it's one of the most virtuosic orchestras. Virtuosic, is that a word? It's good enough. It's a virtuoso orchestra, one of the greatest in Europe, known as the Bamberg Symphony. Their origins are very interesting. Originally, it was known as the German Orchestra in Prague. It was, as the name suggests, an orchestra set up in Prague featuring the native Germans of the area, because there were a lot of Germans in Czechoslovakia before the war. We won't mention the war, right? But anyhow, because of the war, the Czechs basically kicked out anybody of German origin. So all the musicians associated with this orchestra seem to have ended up in the same northern Bavarian city of Bamberg, and they reformed and started performing. They made recordings mostly for small up-and-coming record labels that were looking to record orchestras on the cheap because the major orchestras in Europe had all been grabbed by the major labels. Vox Records was one of the labels that were looking to issue things, at least in North America, on the cheap. Uh, they weren't necessarily the original ones contracted to record the orchestra. There were a lot of small companies in Europe as well, but Vox would buy up a lot of the licensing of these recordings. And unfortunately, these recordings weren't necessarily top drawer when it comes to recording techniques, even in the stereo era. This is unfortunately the case with a lot of the Bamberg Symphony's early recordings. What makes it stand out, though, what makes these recordings stand out, is the incredible precision of the playing and the virtuosity of the orchestra. So quite often, the stereo sound especially is passable. You just have a basic setup of microphones, which unfortunately, with a orchestra that's not necessarily of the same caliber, can result in a wash of sound. It's just too much blending together. That's a problem. What rescues these Bamberg, earlier Bamberg recordings is, like I said, the precision of their playing, their articulation, their discipline. They have always been a good orchestra, and recordings later on for bigger labels uh, demonstrate that. But here is an earlier recording, I think from the late 50s, early 60s, so couldn't be uh, mid-50s because stereo wasn't really prominent then. And it features the conductor, Jornel Perlea, a Romanian conductor who knew his opera extremely well. And he issued a disc of Rossini overtures. Again, the performances are magnificent, and if you hear any, any decent articulation, which you will, it's because of the players, not because of the miking. So let's hear the orchestra under Jornel Perlian now perform the overture to Giacchino Rossini's charming opera buffa, La Cenerentola, or Cinderella.
Okay, that's starting to warm me up quite nicely. That was, I consider, an impeccable performance of the overture to Giacchino Rossini's opera La Cenerentola, as performed by the Bamberg Symphony under the direction of Jornel Perlea. So, what could follow an overture? Well, how about another overture? Why not? And a famous one at that by the Austrian composer, Viennese composer to some degree, um, that's where a lot of his music was presented, even though he wasn't originally from Vienna. I'm talking about Franz von Suppe, who was extremely well known as an operatic composer, although he did record music, uh, did record, did compose music, and this other music has been recorded too, in other genres. One of his most famous concert overtures is a work called Ein Morgen, Ein Mittag, Ein Abend in Wien, or Morning, Noon, and Night in Vienna. Very charming work. If you are a Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny cartoon aficionado, you might recognize this work as the one that Bugs Bunny conducts, supposedly with the Hollywood Bowl Symphony Orchestra, in a cartoon entitled Baton Bunny. That was the cartoon that won the rabbit his one and only Oscar. Look it up. It's a fantastic cartoon if you haven't seen it. But we're going to hear it perform today. And in a recording that should demonstrate what good miking can do from the famous Mercury Living Presence series of the late 50s and early 60s. This recording itself is 1959. It features the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in their heyday under the direction of Paul Paré. So let's listen now to Franz von Suppe's concert overture, Ein Morgen, Ein Mittag, Ein Abend in Wien, morning, noon, and night in Vienna.
Okay, that performance was champagne-worthy. We just heard the Detroit Symphony Orchestra conducted by Paul Perret in a wonderful performance of Franz von Suppe's Concert Overture, Morning, Noon, and Night in Vienna. Well, we've had a couple of entrees. Let's have the first course, <laughs> as it were. Now, Franz Joseph Haydn, although a very prolific composer, did not provide much in the way of concertos, especially piano concerti. This was not a vehicle that interested him. There are probably 14 or 16 concerti that we can attribute to Haydn, that we know that he composed. None of them are spectacular in their virtuosity. Not that Haydn himself was not a great pianist. He was, and his piano sonatas really bear that out. They're still my favorite uh, sonatas pre-Beethoven. But Having been employed by the Esterhazy family most of his life, particularly Count Nicholas Esterhazy, Haydn never needed to worry about where he was going to get an income. And piano concerti at the time were vehicles for other composers, especially Mozart, to prove their worth. And Mozart was a virtuoso. Nevertheless, these concerti of Haydn are delightful. We're going to listen to number four. It's in G major. The interesting thing about this concerto and a number of other concerti of this period, of this earlier classical period, is their economy of means in a certain direction. Think of them as the transformers of composition. In other words, there's actually more than one composition within the composition, and I'll explain what I mean. If you listen carefully to the work, you will hear that there is a distinct separation between the solo orchestral passages and it's a small orchestra, really. It really should be considered a chamber group. These orchestral passages known as ritornello, that's a leftover from the Baroque era, plural is ritornelli, are distinct in that they are separate from when the solo instrument comes into play. If you listen to this concerto, you can tell that if you knew what you were doing as a, as a performer, you could extract the solo piano parts, which have very, very minimal accompaniment to them from the orchestra, and hey presto changeo, you actually have a piano sonata. This made a lot of sense when you think about it, because not everybody has a chord orchestra in their home. I certainly don't, and I don't think you guys do, and that certainly was the case in Viennese and Austrian society in the late 18th century. Even though the middle class was on the rise, could they afford orchestras? No, but what they could afford were their own keyboards. And so in order to have this repertoire available, more than just uh, for concerto purposes, where it wouldn't really be played all that often, kind of made sense to provide a composition in such a way that you could excise the orchestral parts and still have a functioning work. Most likely was done this way. Not enough research has been done into this type of composition, but they do exist and I've come across them. And um, it would be interesting to hear a recording of this work done in such a fashion where it's just the solo piano playing the solo piano parts. So it's in the classic three movements, the third of which Rondo is based on a Croatian folk dance. Haydn's ancestry was Croatian and his music is actually heavy imbued, heavily imbued by Croatian folk music, which also makes sense from the Hungarian point of view since there was a lot of cross-pollination between Hungarians and and uh, Croatians. What's interesting about this recording from a compositional point of view is that the cadenzas for the first two movements were provided by the Italian film composer Nino Rota. Now, 
For those friends of mine who are listening who went to high school with me, I'll just throw out this tidbit. We went to high school with Nino Rota's granddaughter. How about that? What's really interesting about this performance is it's done by Nino Rota's very close friend, the great Italian pianist Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli, who is a legend in the piano world. Everything he does is gorgeous. It's magic. His performances are spectacular, and he does real justice to this piano concerto. He is accompanied by the Zurich Chamber Orchestra under the direction of Edmund de Stutz. Let's listen now to Franz Josef Haydn's Piano Concerto Number no. 4. Don't know if it's the fourth one he composed, but there it is, number four in G major. Thank you. 
the delightful piano concerto in G major by Franz Josef Haydn, given the Hoboken catalog number of 8 colon 4, that's Anthony von Hoboken, not the city of Hoboken, famous again from a Bugs Bunny cartoon with the little penguin, in which Bugs Bunny says, Hoboken, ooh, I'm dying again. See where I spent my youth? Immersed in the great Looney Tunes and Merry Melody cartoons of Warner Brothers. Anyhow, that concerto was performed immaculately by pianist Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli and the Zurich Chamber Orchestra under the direction of Edmund de Stutz. Now, to complement this, let's have another little charming composition that could have made a good opening in a concert, I think, even though stylistically it's very different, and it's a work by the American composer Ferdi Grofe. Nope, not the Grand Canyon Suite, which is his magnum opus, and unfortunately quite often is the only work performed of Grofe, and even then it's been out of fashion for a while. It shouldn't be. It's a spectacular composition. Originally it was composed well, not originally composed for Paul Whiteman's band. It was it started its genesis a bit before Whiteman asked him to provide something. Grofe was Whiteman's major contributor, sort of like being a court composer in its own way. And Whiteman's band was sort of what one would call pseudo-jazz. It really wasn't jazz, but there was enough um, syncopation going on to sort of wet the appetites of the unracialized population, shall we put it that way. The Grand Canyon Suite, though, really sounds at its best in a full orchestral version, of which Whiteman was not a full orchestra, and Grofe was a marvelous orchestrator. The same can be said about an earlier suite, from about a decade earlier, 1925, the one we're going to hear today, the Mississippi Suite. Again, first provided for Whiteman's band, it definitely had grander concept in re regarding the orchestration in its background and surely the full orchestral version of it is more interesting than anything I think Whiteman would have performed. It's a short work, uh, four movements, about uh, 12 or so minutes, and the four movements of this Mississippi Suite are quite uh, descriptive. You have the first movement is Father of the Waters, you know, the Mississippi, then you have Huckleberry Finn, then Old Creole Days, and finally, Mardi Gras, a very delightful work, and I think you'll enjoy it. We'll hear it performed by the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Andre Kostelanitz. Here is Ferdi Grofe's Mississippi Suite.
Andre Kostelanitz conducted the New York Philharmonic in Ferdi Grofe's Mississippi Suite. He only composed one, so it's just one Mississippi, not two Mississippi, or three Mississippi, or... Yeah, I'll keep quiet now. Do ba do ba do 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 do
One of the great American jazz vocalists of the 20th century. That was Anita O'Day in her scat interpretation of Richard Rodgers' famous Slaughter on 10th Avenue ballet sequence from the movie On Your Toes. It was orchestrated and conducted by Bill Holman. There is something quintessentially American sounding in her vocalization of that. It's, it's perfect, especially for the era of the 50s and 60s when she was active. Wonderful piece of music. Now another very interesting piece of music is a pop song from about 1970, actually exactly 1970, by the Scottish band The Marmalade. Their biggest hit was called Reflections of My Life. What makes this work very interesting, and I consider it a work, well everything's a work, you could call it a song. It is a song. But you know what bugs me is the vernacular of popular music. Everything is a song, even if there are no lyrics. Well, in this case, there are lyrics. And as I say, Reflections of My Life is an interesting song with a very reflective text. Hence, Reflections of My Life. I'm going in circles here. But what makes this piece interesting is that it is not your normal 12-bar blues style or 16 or 32-bar pop style. It is in the style of a famous classical form known as the Passacaglia. Eight bars, usually eight chord progressions that are repeated. This is the structure, by the way, of Johann Pachelbel's famous canon. You will hear the structure in this song and it works extremely well. I wonder if the composers of the song, who are members of the band, knew this compositional technique, probably because the structure is really, really tight and very effective. 
and the harmonic changes within are subtle and delicious. So here is a great pop song from May of 1970. If you remember it, you're very lucky. If you don't, you're in for a great treat. Here is The Marmalade and Reflections of My Life.
that brings me back to my youth, 1970. I was all of seven years old at the time, but I certainly remember that song. And I'm going to sound like an old codger, the get-off-my-lawn type, and say they don't write songs like that anymore. Well, of course they don't, because they write other songs. This is... That was a great performance of the song Reflections of My Life by the band that composed it, the Scottish band The Marmalade. That was heartwarming, that song, which, as I've pointed out, today's a very cold day, so it's nice to have something to warm me up. I would like to remind you that you are hopefully nice and cozy with a snuggy blanket around you or on your lap, and maybe a cat sitting on your lap. Yes, I hope you brought your cat with you to my music room. I love cats. You are listening to Dave's Music Room. You are welcome in Dave's Music Room. And I am David Kavlovic. I would like to remind you that I have an email address. And it would be nice to hear from you at times. The email address, which you can find on the webpage, the application or the site that you use to download this podcast. But uh, if you want me to say it out loud, I will. It's... Dave at yahoo.ca. I also now have a weekly radio show in Ottawa on station CKCU 93.1 FM, the mighty CKCU, as it's been called for some 46 years. It's one of the oldest campus community radio stations in North America, and it has been a very successful venture. My show is called Music for a While, and you can hear it as your midweek, mid-morning coffee break from 10 to 11 every Wednesday. That's Eastern Standard Time. Or you can listen to it on demand at any time you wish. Hope to see you there as well.
Johann Schrammel's Wien bleibt Wien, a very famous composition in a style known as Schrammelmusik, because his music was so popular in Vienna in the Eudigens, the beer halls and the cafes, particularly in the favorite instrumentation of zither, a couple of violins, a bass instrument, but his music was suitable for other instrumentations, especially the march, uh, especially his marches, and this one was arranged by famous Deutscher Marchmeister Willi Schmidt-Petersen. Wien bleibt Wien means Vienna remains Vienna, and it certainly does, and this was a very interesting performance by, of all groups, the wind ensemble of the Berlin Philharmonic under the direction of Herbert von Karajan. One of his strangest recordings, it nevertheless is very interesting, it was a collection on two LPs issued in the 70s of Prussian and Austrian marches. The original issue on LP in the 70s had a very strange, shall I put it, cover, which considering 30 years earlier, the end of the war, again, don't mention the war, was a very odd cover indeed to go with. I would Google, if you're interested, the title Prussian and Austrian Marches and Herbert von Karajan, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Certainly Deutsche Grammophon realized later on it was an unfortunate choice, so when it was reissued on CD, they changed the cover. Wisely so. Now for a little Canadian segue. Quadrille Canadienne, performed by pianist Elaine Keeler, composed by the French-born but Quebec-naturalized early 19th century composer Antoine Dessin, who lived from 1826 to 1873. He utilized a number of French-Canadian folk tunes in his quadrilles, and this one was the well-known Vive la Canadienne. A segue, because the rest of the program is dedicated to a disc issued by a trio that no longer exists on account of two of its members have now passed on, but it was the Rembrandt Trio, which featured violinist Gerard Cantarjan, cellist Conrad Blumendahl, and pianist Valerie Tryon. They issued a disc in 1992, which was produced, by the way, by another great Canadian pianist, Antonin Kubalik, of piano trios of Brahms and Dvorak. So we're going to listen to this disc. The first work is Johannes Brahms's early work, an Opus 8, composed in about 1853-1854, is Piano Trio Number no. 1 in B major, which is interesting in the fact that it was premiered, not in Germany, but in New York City. It was presented there by the pianist William Mason and violinist Theodore Thomas, who would later become the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, and ultimately settled in Chicago and founded the Chicago Symphony. So there's an interesting uh, connection there to the, to the Americas. Beautiful work, 
don't want to say too much more about it other than it's a in the classic albeit romantic version of Brahms who remained a classicist at heart even with a romantic a tone palette and key structure that gets into complicated theory which you don't really need to worry about but anyhow it's a beautiful four movement work opening with a great allegro con brio a delightful little scherzo well it's not that little six minutes a beautiful adagio and a final allegro that has that hint of hungarianism that Wagner, Wagner, whoa, Brahms would hit me for that, that Brahms absolutely adored. So here is Johannes Brahms Piano Trio number one in B major, opus eight, performed by the Rembrandt Trio. <laughs>
the Piano Trio Number 1 in B Major, Opus 8 by Johannes Brahms. We heard it performed there by one-time Canadian chamber ensemble Rembrandt Trio, which consisted of Gerard Kantarjan, violin, Conrad Blumendahl, cello, and Valerie Tryon, piano. This is one of my favorite chamber discs of all time, and not just because of my Canadian bias. The disc concludes with the substantive Piano Trio in E minor by Antonin Dvorak, Opus 90, subtitled Dumki. Now, what's a Dumki? It's plural of Dumka. There, now you've learned something. What the heck's a Dumka? Well, that's a Ukrainian folk dance that's of a rather ponderous nature, very popular in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. The word Dumka itself seems to be a derivative of the word Duma, which means to ponder or to think. And it's interesting that the Russian parliament, even the Ukrainian parliament, I believe, are known as Dumas. They're supposedly places to think about things. This is a very interesting chamber work because it's not in your classic four-movement sonata form style, but it's really more a selection of, or a cycle of six Dumki movements. All the tempo markings are on the slow side because that's the nature of Dumki or Dumka for the singular again. I'll give you the tempo markings. The first one is Lento Maestoso. The second is Poco Adagio. Third, Andante. Fourth, Andante Moderato. The fifth actually is an allegro, but a slow allegro. And finally, another Lento Maestoso. The cello predominates in this work to give it a wonderfully melancholic feel, because if there's one thing us Slavs are collectively, it's melancholic. Let's now listen to the Rembrandt Trio perform probably Antonin Dvorak's most famous chamber piece, the Piano Trio in E minor, subtitled Dumki, Opus 90. <laughs>
Piano Trio in E Minor, Opus 90, often known as the Dumki Trio by Antonin Dvorak, performed most exquisitely. I'm using that word a lot today, I think, but these performances are exquisite. This was a great performance by the Rembrandt Trio, which consisted of violinist Gerard Contarjan, cellist Conrad Blumendahl, and pianist Valerie Tryon. Well, I hope today's music warmed you up. I'm still freezing. 
but that's me. I'm somebody who wears long johns even as early as late October if it's cold enough and wears it all the way through to April. It's been chilly, but the music has been warm and so has your company. So I hope to see you next week where it'll most likely be still dastardly cold. This is Ottawa. What did I expect? But I certainly will enjoy your company. In the meantime, maybe you will join me for a midweek, mid-afternoon, mid-morning <laughs> coffee break on my radio show on Wednesdays on CKCU-FM 93.1 called Music for a While. Otherwise, I'll see all of you next week, I hope. You have been a guest in Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic, and I thank you for listening. See you next time.